With more than 500 programs a year, there is never a dull moment at the Commonwealth Club. If you're a fan of this podcast and you like hearing new and provocative discussions with the most interesting people in the world, consider showing your support by joining the Commonwealth Club and ensuring that the conversations never end. Visit commonwealthclub.org special to get special rates on membership. You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at InforumSF.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at InforumSF. Thank you for that intro, Crystal. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to today's virtual program with Inforum and the Commonwealth Club. For those who don't know you, don't know me. I'm Davey D., um, longtime journalist. Um, some people say hip-hop historian. I'm a good guy and now an author. So I just put out my own book with Jeff Chang. So props to that. Um, today I'm in a conversation with journalist extraordinaire Rob Kenner. Rob is the founding editor of Vibe magazine and the author of a new book, which is incredible, called The Marathon, Don't Stop, The Life and Times of Nipsey Hussle. We're here to explore the late rapper's origins and the lasting impact his music has had on music and culture. And finally, if you'd like to ask us a question, please ask it in the chat or comment section. We'll try to get through as many questions as possible towards the end of the program. So with that being said, Rob, it's good to see you again. And, uh, you know, for folks who don't know me and Rob been chatting it up, uh, for the past couple of months. So we got to know each other. We've been working on a little project we'll talk about a little bit later. But um, the obvious question that I have to ask is why Nipsey Hussle? And let me give some contextualization to this. Los Angeles is the second largest city in the United States. It's the entertainment capital of the world. If there are there's any number of people that are there that are, I mean, are worthy of our attention. But I'm just thinking of three big events where I saw the Staples Center filled to the brim with people coming all over to commemorate the death of somebody. I was at the Michael Jackson funeral. I'll never forget that. That was huge. We all saw the live coverage and the Staples Center pack for Kobe Bryant. The third person that we've seen this honor bestowed upon, at least in Black America, is Nipsey Hussle. His uh, funeral was broadcast on numerous television stations, including BET. His, uh, the attendance was to the brim, like the Michael Jackson funeral. And yet Nipsey Hussle only had maybe one or two albums. I don't know if he won a Grammy. He wasn't an everyday uh, name that we bantered about, but not only did he have that send-off, here we are at the Commonwealth Club, you know, with a packed audience having a conversation about Nipsey Hussle. Why him? What is so special about him? That's uh, the perfect question, and thank you for that illustrious intro, Davey D. Um, if you say the book is dope, then I believe it. Um, I, I would say that the answer to your question also is contained in the, the first pages of my book, you know, um, I made a decision when writing the marathon don't stop that it was not going to be a book about a tragedy. 
it was a book about a triumph and you know i didn't want to fall into the cliches of you know the 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 who done it and the murder mystery and you know focusing on on death um however there was no place to begin the book other than the memorial service you know seeing Lauren London stride to the podium in her white dress Lauren his um, wife yes um to to you know address the city of Los Angeles and and the world as you mentioned it was a nationally televised um memorial a lot of people outside of LA don't understand what Nipsey Hussle meant to that city and Nipsey Hussle's impact of course reached far beyond Los Angeles he understood how to inspire and connect with fans all over the globe his his movement was always global um and i think the answer to your question is also the the reason why i had to write this book he's one of the most important and misunderstood cultural figures in history and uh no other artist in hip hop has ever done what he did uh i've i've really racked my brains to think about all the great inspirational heroes that hip hop has given us all the rags to riches stories that you can think of and that you can point to nobody ever did it quite the way Aramis Askadome did it um think of someone like Jay-Z we all know where Jay-Z came from it's in his rhymes it's well documented the the struggles that he overcame to become a billionaire and to build this amazing empire that is now rock nation but he didn't build that in the marcy projects you know he didn't build it right on the ground zero where he came up you know to do that defies explanation to do that defies logic uh why would you put yourself at that risk uh why would you take on all the added obstacles and pressures that come with that you know as e40 famously said hey come with the plate and it's an unfortunate reality that you know getting the bag is one part of the miracle securing that bag is a whole other uh challenge and you know when i spoke with rallo styles nips high school classmate um he he made it clear that you know there's never been a rapper from the heart of los angeles who made it as big as an impossible you know in new york city people think of nwa as los angeles rap they're from compton you know compton is not the city of los angeles and that's an important distinction that often gets lost on those outside of the state of california nip was from the heart you know he came up in the aftermath of the rodney king uprising he came up at the dawn of the death row era in rap you know as a as a child he was stepping out of his house and listening to you know he he often said he never had to buy death row records they were just everywhere you know you heard Snoop and Dre and you know all the greats Tupac ringing out from every corner from every passing car on Crenshaw you know so these are the things that shaped him and he had a dream to become a hip hop star from his earliest days you know um he wanted to be crisscross when crisscross was out he wanted to be bow wow 
he was a, a, a small child with big dreams and he made those dreams a reality. And I think that's what everybody responded to, but it is remarkable. And you said, you know, at least in black America, I don't think anybody other than the three individuals you mentioned has had that honor of the Staples Center. And you think about it, Michael Jackson is the king of pop. He's not the best black pop star. He's the king of pop. Um, Kobe Bryant probably should be the NBA logo. There's a big movement to remix the NBA logo in his honor. He's one of the best to ever do it. You know, Michael Jackson, I mean, Michael Jordan, uh, you know, is in conversation, of course, and, you know, other people too. But, you know, these are the, the best of the very best. And Nipsey belongs in that company. He did something different. He was more than an entertainer. He was more than an entrepreneur. He was an activist. He was an inspirational figure. He was a community leader. He was a, a uniter and not a divider in a city with too many divisions. And, uh, you know, the sense of loss when he passed for everybody that, that cared about hip hop, certainly in his city, is, is really indescribable. And, and the city needed that. Let's uh, go a little bit deeper into this. And I hear what you said. I'm, you know, there's some people that's listening because, you know, you made some pretty strong statements, you know, about, you know, his 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 uh, his um his position in hip hop at the very least, you know I'm thinking well Rakim, and I'm thinking Chuck D and you know we can there's a long list right so I'm sure there will be a lot of people that will debate, but I bring this up to ask, the music industry and the entertainment industry itself has parameters and it has criteria that we start to measure success with. Maybe we don't intend to do it, but we do. Oh, they won a Grammy. That means something. They made X amount of dollars. That means something. I see them on TV. That means something. You start off and you talk a lot about the things that Nipsey did. And these things weren't on TV. They weren't Grammy nominated, although his last album did get nominated for a Grammy victory laps. But are we missing something? And is that an indictment on maybe folks who view communities through the prisms of corporate America and its entertainment arm, and therefore we miss the things that obviously 20,000-plus people clearly understood, which is why they showed up so much. And the weeks after Nip's funeral, I mean, there were marches in the streets. You know, I think for a lot of people it's like, how and why? Because you were hard-pressed to find a lot of press, a lot of mainstream corporate America validation. And even as we're speaking here at the Commonwealth Club and we're heard on community and public airwaves, he wasn't even in those spaces. This is the first time many people are hearing his name in these spots. So let's talk a little bit about what you laid out that may have touched people in such a way that went over the heads of all of us who were like, I ain't never heard of the guy until the day he died. And so many people have said that to me, and I'm sure you've heard it again and again. Who was this person? I never understood why he was important. Why did he have this? People in Los Angeles, Uber drivers, when I was researching the book, you know, were telling me things like that. And I think the, the answer is that Nip was never trying to be the most famous rapper. 
He was trying to have integrity. He was trying to speak his truth without any uh, mediation, without any compromise. And he focused on uh, those people that really tapped in with him and overserved them, you know, and that was the whole genius of his movement. If you think about, let's just take one example of how Nipsey Hussle completely disrupted the music industry. Um, his career coincides with the Napster era, you know, the, the whole rap uh, model that, you know, Death Row Records, you know, they were selling the chronic for $19 at CD Warehouse, you know. By the time Nip had a chance to start, you know, putting out music, because he was actually signed to Epic Records when he did the Bullets Ain't Got No Name uh, mixtape series, Quiet As It Was Kept, you know, they... They, he, they made an agreement with him and they were backing those projects. But at that moment, people were able to download everything for free. And so um, as he put it, he, it was like taking off in a jet plane and suddenly you have to fix the plane in midair, you know? And his genius was to say, well, you know, I'm going to find the hardcore fans who really just love my music and I'm gonna communicate them with them directly. You know, he was on Napster. He was a very tech-savvy kid. He built his own computer. He understood social media way before most people. And what he did was to stay in touch with all of the fans. You know, when, when he put out his marathon mixtape, you had to uh, sign up at iHustle.com. You had to give your email address, and they would email you a zip file link. So right away, he's in contact with that fan. Now, we should just make mention, this is a guy who's 17, 18 years old doing this, right? Oh, absolutely. I, yeah, I think I want to make sure that people understand this because a lot of times um, we're thinking, okay, he's a grown man. Of course he would do this. But when you're 16, 17, that puts it in another stratosphere. And it may raise the question. I don't want to lose your point. No, I'm, I'm with but, you. But, 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 you know, if it's 17 or 18-year-old kid that is – you know, from a different part of the country and of a different hue, they might be looking at him saying he's a, a genius. You know, he's the next Steve Jobs or the next Steve Wozniak or whoever is the hot individual. He didn't get those praises, but he was a tech-savvy kid that was taking advantage of stuff at such a young age. And and let's be clear, way And a hardcore gang, gang member. member. Yeah, well, <laughs> that, that came yeah. later. That yeah. came later, but way beyond tech-savvy, he built his own computer, okay? Yeah. It's not that he came up with a cool website. He constructed the computer in his bedroom. He, he found parts. He was asked to leave high school because parts were going missing from the machines at, at his school. And, you know, whether he did it or not, you know, he was the type of person that you would think, oh, like... That might have been him because he built his own computer, you know, like this is genius level stuff. But anyway, his 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 marketing acumen for music um, has actually changed the music market still to this day. So, you know, at a time when everybody's downloading stuff for free, he says, I'm going to sell a physical CD for one hundred dollars a piece. And I'm going to sell it to the most dedicated hardcore fans. I've got them on my Twitter. When I tweet this out, they're going to line up. And sure enough, they did. And people said he was crazy. People said it was ridiculous. 
um, he was reading books to get the idea. He was actually inspired by a, a cheesesteak shop in Philly uh, that was written about in a business book called Contagious that, that he read that was recommended to him by one of his mentors. One of the marks of genius is, is cultivating great mentors and you know listening to them and, and receiving their knowledge and applying it to your generation. Um, so that first night, they sold $100,000 worth of these limited edition CDs. A hundred of those went to Jay-Z, who wired $10,000 that first night. And to this day, uh, the music industry uses that model for Taylor Swift, Justin Bieber. They sell their pop records with a bundle. It's called a bundle. And they put the, the tickets to the new tour in that uh, $100 or $500 purchase. And that's how they make sure that those records go number one. And that's, that's how they sell tickets. So Nip had the idea, I'm going to make an exclusive concert event for my hardcore fans. They get the CD and tickets to a future show for $100. And nobody ever did it before. It's now standard practice. So, you know, this is just one example. He was way ahead of his time. That exclusivity that we see now, we see it come in the form of, I think, what is it, NTS? Um, I'm, and NFTs. Yeah. I'm, why am I messing non up? Non-fungible, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we see people doing that, you know, capitalizing off of the exclusivity. Uh, the only other person I saw do that since we're in the Bay Area, I got to give a shout out to JT, the bigger figure out of San Francisco, was, you know, um, the person that I saw, you know, take his uh, tapes and his actually his magazine and say, if you want this information on the industry, you know, give me a hundred bucks or something crazy like that. And yeah, it did work. But that, again, a genius. In the beginning of the book, you talk about many of his projects. Um, let's illuminate that. I don't think people realize that Nipsey Hussle early on had a workspace center, very similar to WeWorks. He had yeah. one right there in the hood. Um, he was still there. Still right, there. Right. He, uh, he was he bought up the mall in his Crenshaw district. Let's talk about these things because I think that's what people in LA pictured and caught a hold of that the rest of the world didn't. It's like his music is cool, but they understood his impact in other ways. Right, absolutely. And this is again why I felt it was so important to write this book. You know, as I mentioned, there were not the basic articles ever written about Nip because his his moves were so beyond the rap media they were they fell into a zone that was not easily classified and so people just missed it unless you were there on the ground seeing it happen it, it defied easy explanation but yeah um you know for for Nipsey Hustle and his brother uh, the center of the universe was the shopping plaza at Slauson and Crenshaw. Uh, that was where, you know, his brother, Black Sam, would be uh, setting up a table along with fats to, you know, sell just, you know, things that people needed in the community. They knew that their customers didn't have just a, a convenient place to go get white T-shirts and socks and, you know, things that they knew the their local community needed and and every morning they would be out there early doing that they didn't have a license in the beginning so the police would harass them and take their merchandise away 
And eventually one day Sam tells the story that he looked up just after the cops had taken all the merchandise and threatened to lock him up and said, you know, you need to pay rent and pay taxes like, like all the other businesses. And he looked up and saw a for rent sign on one of the stores in the shopping plaza. So they, they opened Sloss and Tees and they had their storefront and, you know, they built it step by step. And eventually, you know, because maybe the people that were their clientele in that neighborhood uh, were on the radar of police and, you know, we know about the history of the, this neighborhood, you know, this is the heart of uh, Rolling 60s territory. And, you know, the police were, were a constant, uh, presence harassing and, you know, chasing them out of there. And so they realized that if they were going to keep this foothold, they had to literally buy back the block. And they found investors, they found a business partner, David A. Gross, who came in and helped them secure that, that real estate. But, you know, the important thing in understanding this is, you know, my book is called The Life and Times of Nipsey Hussle. And to really understand the enormity of his achievement, I had to look back at what is the history of property ownership in California? You know, what does it mean to say South Central Los Angeles? What is the significance of that term? You know, there was a process called redlining, you know, an official policy which restricted black families to live in a certain section of Los Angeles. You know, Central Avenue was part of the axis where you were supposed to live if you were of African-American descent. And, you know, to own that, that ground was everything, you know, very often it was hard to get loans because redlining was a process uh, where it was very difficult to secure a financing to purchase your home in that area, you know, and, and owning real estate is the first step to building wealth in America. So if you're paying rent on your home instead of a mortgage, you have very little chance of elevating your family out of, you know, the, the pressures of, of life, you know, living hand to mouth, check to check. So, right. you know, Nip understood that at a very early age. I mean, I have to say, I'm speaking with the man who did what on YouTube is credited as the first interview with Nipsey Hussle. You know, when you ran into him outside the Get Your Money Right Summit, uh, it was at UCLA, I believe, was it? Yeah. Um, you know, you didn't know this young man when you, you ran into him. It, you know, it was a, a, a conference organized by Russell Simmons to encourage uh, financial literacy and wealth building. Of course, Nip was there. And uh, you can see a young Kendrick Lamar and J-Rock and the Top Dog fan walking by in the background. It was a, it was a hub for the future of L.A. rap. And you just approached him and said, oh, you're an up-and-coming rapper. and Why aren't you blinging? Where's your diamonds? And I know you were asking that in a tongue-in-cheek way but his response he was dead serious yeah he was not playing <laughs> what did he say to you when you said that he said something to the effect man you know uh diamonds don't he said something about you know it's about getting land and having he said, ownership he yeah. said all that is cool for the image and the yeah. ego but i'd rather invest in some real estate yeah and you said would you say that again please you know say it louder for the people in the back kind of thing you know and it was amazing to and we, see. You and know, we had a full-on yeah. conversation about real estate and its future. I didn't even know who he was. You know, it was like he was a young cat. It was interesting um, because his answer, he, he was real serious. Like, you know, you could see this man was like, 
you know, like, man, I'm taking my money and I'm going to invest and we're going to do these things. Yeah. Who knew? Who would have thunk? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so part of that too, I mean, by that time, I believe he had on the Mariners cap, he had the white tee, he had on the uniform of the, of the hood. And I mean, you mentioned before, one of the things, if people knew anything about Nipsey Hussle in, you know, the, the mid uh, 2000s up to like, you know, the, the early part of his career before, you know, Crenshaw tape and proud to pay and then leading to victory lap that early phase. The only thing people would say with their superficial judgment of him is, oh, he's a real gang gangster rapper. He's really in the streets. He's really about that life. That was the, the shorthand that people would say. And, and he kind of looks like Snoop and got some cool music, but people weren't really listening like they could be. Um, but as you learn, you know, yes, he was uh, financially ahead of his time. He was very serious about building wealth. And, you know, the part of the, the thing that I wanted to wrestle with in this book is, you know, how does a young man who can build his own computers, who does have all these ideas about building wealth, how does he end up deciding to join the Rolling Sixties? What are the series of you know, decisions that lead to that. And, you know, for somebody that grew up in America on the diet of, of propaganda and misinformation that we get from the mass media, it's important to get a broader context and understand what, what do we mean when we talk about gangs, you know? And a lot of the early part of the book is devoted to kind of, you know, placing all of that context so that people understand. Like, I learned about a group called the Spook Hunters, you know, yeah. which was, you know, a white gang that was out there harassing black kids on their way to school or with harassing the support of the police, police, with the encouragement and support of police. police. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, you had other groups that were called the Slossons and the Businessmen. And these were black community organizations that were formed to defend families and to def defend the kids going to school. So you cannot just talk about gangs in the, in a vacuum. You know, there is a whole, I mean, a lot of people had never heard of the Proud Boys until they almost overthrew the government a couple months ago. Um, you know, they had the news set up on the steps of the Capitol building um, to, to catch, you know, whoever they could catch from their Trump hit list. So, you know, like when you talk about gangsters, you know, there's levels to this gangster thing. America was built by cowboys and gangsters, really. So, you know, if you think of it that way, um, Nipsey Hussle was a young man who was asked to leave high school because he was, you know, accused of stealing computer parts and had to live by his wits. You know, his family wasn't comfortable with him staying. You know, his, his mother and, and stepfather were not comfortable with him living in the house if he wasn't going to school. He ended up, you know... Um, staying by his grandma and he had to make a living somehow. And, you know, a series of decisions uh, resulted from that. And, you know, one of the voices in the book that I'm very happy to have been able to tap into was Dexter Brown, who was like a father yeah. figure to him, who took him in at a time in his life when, he, you know, his future was very uncertain and he wanted to become a rapper but he didn't have access to equipment, you know, and he would have to ride the bus all the way to Watts to have one hour on an MPC machine, you know, on a, on a weekend. 
But, you know, at Dexter's, he had 24-hour access. Him and Rallo Styles and Cuzzy Capone were in there. And that's where he got the name Nipsey Hussle. Was- let, me, let me just stop you there for a second, Rob. Because um, there's so much to this book that, um, you know, it's, it's 300, 400 pages, you know. And, um, and I just want to make sure that people listening and watching kind of understand um, what, some of the things you did here. In the beginning, you lay out all the business ventures that, you know, this this gentleman, Nipsey Hussle, is involved in, and it's way ahead of its time. It's centered around buying back your community and investing, and he's centered there in South Central. And, of course, he's expanding this, and he's pulling teams of people together, you know, and it's like he's got he's like, hey, I'm a rapper. You're a businessman. You're a sports figure. Let's get our money. And he's buying things. So that's important to note. The other thing that you talk about and you go into great detail is this history of Los Angeles. And you really go into this history when you talk about the police taking the merchandise of Black Sam, Nipsey's older brother, who you just described without here filling a need, you know, providing um, uh, clothing and all sorts of things that were sparse in areas that are essentially food deserts and don't have anything. I thought that's interesting because you talk about this relationship with the police, and I hope people listening can understand. Here you have folks that are not selling drugs, but selling wares and tears. And they're the ones that are being targeted by the police. They're merchant-making. And they're told, you know, get out of here, go get a license. Not like they were taking business away from a store, but it was just to contextualize this adversarial relationship with people in the community. And, you know, to fast forward, on several occasions, as Nips is trying to ascend, the presence of the police is always there. Even when he's trying to do good, even when he buys the mall, there is this constant, you know, interference and presence of the police. And so I'm glad that you gave this long contextualization of it. So it's almost like a history book in that regard. I'm going to assign my class to it, you know, to, to look at it. Yeah. Oh, that would be amazing. Because I think it's important to know. But let me just ask this. One of the spark points that you also talk about is him connecting with his father, who is Eritrean. And his father, real his biological father, coming back into the lives and taking him and his sons out to, out the country for three months and how that sparked the change, how he gets to learn that, his country was in a civil war. And can you explain that? I think that's a very, you, you talk about this as a turning point for him and really clicks a lot of switches. He comes back a changed man and even more determined. Absolutely. And, you know, that's really a tribute to his father, Dawit Askadom, who stayed in his son's lives, although uh, his marriage to Nip and Sam's mom, you know, had ended. Um, he was determined to keep his sons connected to the culture. And even, you know, in Los Angeles, he would cook Eritrean food. They like to go to Ethiopian restaurants, which is, you know, the neighboring country. And, and, uh, you know, Dawit Askadon came to America, um, seeking, you know, refuge from a 30 year 
civil war that was going on between, um, you know, the Ethiopian uh, forces and Eritrean forces. And that's a long and complex story that has to do with, you know, the forces of colonialism moving in and, you know, dividing people and a lot of, you know, complicated uh, divisions. But in any case, you know, he would describe his father as a freedom fighter. And he was very proud of the role that his dad played in the resistance in Eritrea. And so when his dad said, we're going to go back now, we're going to spend three months, I think Nipsey wanted to go and Sam probably wanted to go. Um, but it was, you know, three months is a long time, right? You know, and uh, he, he mentioned in different interviews that, you know, maybe two weeks would be enough, you know, maybe, maybe we could just dip in and dip out. But his father was adamant, no, you're going to spend time with your family. You know, he learned the language, he, he, he soaked up the culture. And what he talked about uh, in, in my conversation with him around the Victory Lap album rollout was that, you know, he was for the first time in a country where, you know, all the authority figures looked like him, you know, uh, where family was of paramount importance, where everything stopped for the midday meal. Kids came home from school, businesses closed. Everybody had to get together and share a meal. And, you know, um, there was a tremendous respect for women that really deeply impressed him also. And he, he started to think about why are women not as respected in America and in, the, in Los Angeles where I grew up, you know, um, he said he started to think about his Eritrean, you know, cousins and the women in his family in such a, uh, you know, protective and, and regal way, you know, he, he said, like, if anyone was ever to mess with them, you know, I don't know what I would do, but it was, it was, it was a deeply profound experience. And, and he returned people who knew him before and after talked about it. When he came back from Los Angeles, um, he had a renewed sense of purpose and, and what, you know, is referred to in many hip hop songs as knowledge of self, you know, that's, that's what he had. And, you know, it reminds me a little bit of Malcolm's trip to Mecca, you know, that, you know, is a, a revelatory uh, journey that, you know, another thing that I found very powerful is that, you know, he was already on his music mission by that point. Um, and his father saw that he was also, you know, getting involved in the street life, which I think concerned him. I think that was part of the decision to, to bring his sons, you know, to another, uh, another way of life. Um, but, you know, when Nip went out there, he had his music and he would play it. He went to a record shop in Asmara in the, in the capital city. And, and he said, you know, I'm going to be a famous rapper one day. You're going to hear about me. And uh, sure enough, uh, on his next trip back home, as he would call Eritrea, um, he was a famous rapper and sitting down with the president of the country. And, you know, that last interview that he did for the Eritrean national newspaper is one of the most powerful statements ever. I mean, he was so patiently explaining to someone who really wasn't particularly hip hop savvy or savvy to the life that he was from. He was as a true cultural ambassador answering questions like what is hip hop and are gangs scary? And, you know, things that to hear his patient and, and detailed answers to those questions at that stage in his life, it's very, very powerful, very moving. <laughs> The other 
presence that is there. And he he's often talked about that he got his name for Nick, Nipsey Russell, the comedian. He's compared to Snoop because they kind of have the same body type. And even sometimes in his early days, kind of similar ways in which they rapped. Um, yeah, yeah the, but but the presence of another influential person who left us too soon, who probably would have packed the Staples Center as well if his funeral was down there. He was cremated, and we're talking about Tupac. Talk about this relationship with Nipsey and Tupac, because I don't think people realize, and then connect that with another person who comes up at the same time as Nipsey, uh, as Nipsey and has worldwide impact as well, which is Kendrick Lamar, right? So both these gentlemen, you talk about in the book at various times is their relationship, but I did not realize, you know, that he had conversations. So talk about the relationship with Tupac and, and Nipsey or Tupac's family and legacy. Right. Well, you know, it's on the record dedication from the Victory Lap album, the Grammy-nominated uh, Victory Lap album, uh, featuring Kendrick Lamar, that uh, Nipsey calls himself Tupac of my generation. And so one of the questions I knew I had to ask when we sat down a, a few days after that album was released was, you know, about that line, you know, jumps out at you. And, you know, I was at Vibe from 1992 for 17 years, so I had the opportunity to really learn about Tupac's legacy and you know we covered his career in great detail and you know the the triumphs and the tragedy um but you know I said that's a big statement Nipsey to to call yourself the Tupac of your generation what do you mean by that you know that could mean a lot of things and his answer his answer was very interesting he said that Tupac was a Trojan horse um and that you know, he was someone who had a powerful mind and a, a profound intellect, but he didn't always reveal that. And, you know, he said in our culture, street culture, uh, intelligence is sometimes viewed as a form of weakness. And, you know, you don't want to intimidate people and say, oh, he's, he's smart. You know, he, we don't want to go with all that you know, mess or what you just don't want to lose people who you hope are going to be involved in the change that you're hoping to make. And uh, Nip said that he identified with that, you know, that was the part of Nip's of uh, Nip's affinity to, to Tupac. And, you know, in the process of working on the book, uh, one of the most mind blowing anecdotes that I heard, and um, I'm going to leave you with a dramatic pause because I'm getting a battery alert for my laptop. So I'm just going to plug into the wall one second. Hold on real quick. Okay. You should be good now. Um, one of the most amazing anecdotes that I heard was from Rollo Stiles, who explained to me that before Nipsey Hussle was known as Nipsey Hussle, when he was a conscious rapper going by the name of Concept, he made a track with Rallo Styles and an, another artist who's uh, moved between Atlanta and Los Angeles. And this record somehow found its way to the attention of Afeni Shakur. Afeni Shakur heard That's the track. That's Tupac's mom. mom. Yes, the, the late, great, um, you know, uh, member of the Black Panthers, you know, a, a 
revolutionary figure in her own right. And she decided that she wanted this record performed at a posthumous album launch for one of the Tupac tribute albums that were put out by Fanny and, and the estate. So long before he was involved in street life to any serious extent, long before he was known as Nipsey Hussle, for some reason, Destiny called him to go, you know, fly from LA to Atlanta and perform at a Tupac event at the invitation of a Fanny Shakur. And even in the ride from the airport to Stone Mountain, Georgia, Matulu Shakur uh, calls the from behind, prisoner, you know, Matulu Shakur. Yes, calls from, from behind bars just to check in and ask to speak with Hermes. He had never heard of this young man. It's not clear why of all the people who had just flown in from LA, he wanted to talk to Aramis, but that's what happened. You know, according to Rallo Stiles, who was riding in the van. So, you know, things like this are very difficult to, um, you know, to process, but you know, that is how deep it became. And, and so, you know, you mentioned Kendrick, as you know, Kendrick Lamar had his own profound relationship with Tupac. Uh, he had memories of seeing Pac shooting a video, you know, when he was a child. And, and um, of course, on his album, To Pimp a Butterfly, there's a very powerful recurring motif where he's having a conversation with what turns out to be, for lack of a better term, Tupac's spirit, you know, and, and he, he has spoken about Tupac coming to him in, in dreams and you know, Tupac looms very large over, you know, certainly hip hop in general and particularly in Los Angeles. And um, so there is a conversation that took place at the premiere of the All Eyes on Me Tupac film where, um, you know, it was Kendrick, it was Nipsey, uh, I believe, uh, you know, Snoop was in the convo and also top from TDE. We're all in a, in a conversation talking about, you know, future plans and ambitions and, you know, next level ambitions that they had for the city and for, for how they could play a part in changes to come. And um, what better occasion than at the Tupac premiere when you're, you're reflecting on his legacy. And um, Kendrick actually references that in his verse on dedication. If you go back and listen to it, he's talking about that. But, you know, this is just how profound these legacies are. And the way that they interact is, is really quite, quite mystical and, and, you know, difficult to explain logically. The presence of gangs is throughout the book. It plays a role, key members, the Rolling Sixties, um, which is considered the largest black gang in Los Angeles, um, which Nipsey's a part of, is is looming. A couple of things come to mind. Considering the constant disruption by the police, it almost seems like that the gangs in the ironic thing is that if the gangs aren't there, we wonder if Nipsey would even be here because it seems like they were able to get him you know, extricated from some of the stuff that he was dealing with. That's one thing. Um, the second thing is we hear about Los Angeles gangs and we often hear about these intense rivalries over colors and everything. But Nipsey, you know, with his music and his friendships and even where he intentionally moves and buys a home 
are crossing barriers. So his first home is in a rival gang neighborhood. He knows it's a rival neighborhood, but he's there anyway, not to cause problems, but to build bridges. And can we talk about that? Because I think it's almost remarkable to see, you know, based upon the stereotypes that we're often fed, to see that these different factions uh, were able to come together and in a very intentional way and do some long lasting projects, including, you know, the infamous, I wouldn't say infamous, but uh, the very necessary record F Donald Trump, which, you know, was an anthem, which featured, you know, Nipsey, a crip, YG, a blood and the essays, you know, which are the largest, you know, gangs in LA for people who don't know they, they're the most largest, but they're all on these records. So let's talk a little bit about that. Well, there again, we have to get back to the foundation of, you know, the history of California and understand what we mean when we talk about gangs. And uh, one of my um, most valuable resources when I was trying to understand that was a documentary that I strongly recommend called Bastards of the Party. Great documentary. Um, documentary. Yeah, which really breaks down the, um, you know, the the long story of how the Crips and the Bloods came to be. And, um, you know, it was produced by someone who was from that life and wanted to understand how, you know, I've lost so many friends to violence and incarceration. You know, how did we get here? And um, his journey of uh, understanding led him to learn about as I was mentioning earlier, groups like the Slossons, who were really community protection organizations. And there was an individual named Bunchy Carter, who was the, the, the leader of the Slossons, who ended up being recruited by Black Panther leadership in Oakland to open the LA uh, branch of the Black Panthers. And so you had a former gang leader who became a political activist. And, uh, you know, he was very soon, as we saw in the film Judas and the Black Messiah with Fred Hampton, he was targeted by federal authorities, um, you know, as with many of Right, these. and I should mention, you talk very deeply about COINTELPRO and the FBI and all those situations in the book, but go ahead. No, but that's the thing. I mean, you know, Malcolm X's murder has never officially been solved. You know, I, I, I read while I was completing a manuscript that it's officially been reopened. And, you know, so all these things, you know, are under a cloud of, of, you know, willful obfuscation and mystery because, you know, forces don't want these cases to be solved. And, um, you know, but Bunchy Carter... Uh, and and the L.A. branch of the Panthers were targeted by the authorities and they were wiped out. You know, J. Edgar Hoover uh, identified the Panthers as the number one threat to America. And, you know, this is a group that was giving out free breakfast to kids and, you know, medical care. And, you know, but they were a threat and they were targeted. And, you know, they also uh, advocated for self-defense. You know, we've seen Donald Trump supporters brandishing automatic weapons uh, in government buildings uh, long before January 6th, um, but none of them were considered a grievous threat to national security. But when Black Panthers uh, took up arms to defend themselves, that was a different story. So in any case, uh, 
you know, we, when we talk about gangs, we need to understand that history. And in the wreckage and the ashes of the Panthers, um, that's when we saw the Crips rise up and, you know, fill a void, really. And um, unfortunately, it was not the same kind of uh, centralized leadership. These were younger people um, and the movement was a little more fractured and it became more neighborhood based and, you know, we've seen uh, the results of, of where things led. But um, I, my belief is that uh, Nip had, an, you know, he was very well read. He was very savvy about, you know, if you listen to his rhymes in Slauson Boy Volume 1, one of his early tapes, he's talking about COINTELPRO. He's talking about, you know, the Panthers and, you know, all of these things were very heavy on his mind. And I believe that he wanted to change the direction of gangs from within. I believe that he wanted to redirect these organizations back to their original mission and purpose. And that involved uniting a divided city. That involved bringing, you know, someone like YG, uh, or even before his friendship with YG, Killa Twan from yeah. Watts was one of his yeah. close friends. You know, he Nip went to middle school in Watts. His, his family, you know, his mom was very motivated to make sure her son was well-educated and he talked about you know I, I couldn't always go to toys r us he said you know if i wanted to go to toys r us uh she might not take me there but if i wanted a book i could always get that book you know and so she would take the trouble to send her son not just to the neighborhood school that was easiest but you know, if, if there was a good program in Watts, that's where her son was going to go. And so as a result, he was making friendships around the city, including Killa Twan, who remained a part of his rap crew, you know, um, in the earliest stages. So he was crossing those boundaries. He was a uniter and not a divider. And that's what the record FDT is all about. That's YG and Nipsey recognizing that. There's a candidate now who's supposedly friends with hip hop, he hangs around with rap moguls and drinks champagne and, you know, whatever else goes on in the VIP room. Um, but he is uh, trying to divide people. He's demonizing Mexicans. He's throwing black kids out of his rallies. And we don't like that. We're not going to stand for it. And, you know, the unified power of hip hop mobilized the vote to get a Barack Obama uh, you know, into his historic, you know, presidency. Um, but when the threat of Donald Trump arose, you know, as a sort of, you could argue, a backlash to the eight years of Obama, um, hip hop was in disarray. And it was only YG and Nip who really organized an effective response. And although Trump still got elected, as we all know, uh, the song FDT was streamed millions of times on Election Day 2020, so I think we owe them a debt of gratitude for how that election uh, result turned out. We have a number of questions for author Rob Kenner, who is here tonight talking about his book, The Marathon Don't Stop, The Life and Times of Nipsey Hussle. And watch your mic there, uh, Rob, because it's rubbing up against the thing. Okay, yeah. sorry, sorry. So yeah. let me read off a couple of questions, and you can just kind of go through them. One question is... I like to ask Rob his favorite Nipsey Hussle song or the song that he believes best represents Nipsey. And then a second question is, despite 
is L.A. Roots, the Bay, where I'm at, really more Nipsey's uh, death. I remember murals uh, within the day going up in Oakland. Why do you think he had that connection 400 miles away from Los Angeles? Uh, well, you know, the murals for Nip were not just in the Bay, but yeah, he had a strong connection to Bay Area rap. I mean, E-40 was one of the people that he would always cite as an inspiration. Uh, the movement that, you know, was built, was sick with it records. And you're talking about, you're talking about um, E-40's business acumen because E-40 yes, has all those businesses too. Yeah. Okay. Of course, the same kind of movement and the same, you know, putting out his own product on his own label, owning everything, you know, F the middleman was, was his, his mantra. And, you know, people forget, but Master P, you know, started his movement in Oakland, California. Um, or Richmond. Was it? Yeah, Richmond. Richmond. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, in the same Bay Area. Um, so, yeah, I mean, but Nip had so much love, even in cities you wouldn't expect in Houston huge, huge support. Atlanta, as I mentioned, it was not only that, that show with Afeni, um, you know, he recorded, I mean, the whole Crenshaw tape was hosted by DJ drama. Um, you know, he, he had real estate in Atlanta as well. You know, the, there was, there was a lot of uh, Nip's movement was international. He was, he was performing in Japan before he had a record deal. He was flying, doing European tours, self-finance, just him and Fats running around Europe. So, you know, that's why you see the outpouring of love for for Nipsey, uh, you know, and, and, you know, after the tragedy of March 31st. Um, when you ask about a favorite song, uh, you know, there's, there's so many songs that are not well enough known. There's so many great records. Um, the title of my book, um, you know, I've had some people on, on social media say, you know, well, it's the marathon continues, not the marathon. Don't stop. Why are you changing it? And, you know, yes, TMC is a very important uh, rallying cry. And, you know, uh, the marathon don't stop is a line from a record called love. Um, it's uh, the first record on the mixtape marathon. And, um, you know, it's, it's a similar declaration. I, I really like that, that song love It's love with a question mark at the end, by the way. Uh, I think Nip was skeptical about hypocrisy in all forms and particularly skeptical about, you know, fake people showing him love and, you know, he didn't want their hugs and, you know, he, he knew that, um, the, the hundred dollar bills he was counting in his drop top and, you know, the pistol that he had to defend himself were real and he could depend on those. And, you know, this talk of love, he was not too sure about, of course, he was a very loving father. He was devoted to Lauren London, but you know, this fake love thing did not interest him at all. Um, another record that I think is really worth listening to um, is uh, Slauson and Crenshaw true story just because it, it really is an autobiographical track that lays out a lot of facts about Nip's life that um, you know he revealed what he wanted to reveal he he controlled the narrative and he used his YouTube video interviews and records like Slauson and Crenshaw um, true story in order to you know tell the tale that he wanted to tell and I, it's, it's very powerful and, and poignant um, there's one other that is a hidden track 
which is at the end of I don't give a fuck. Uh, and it's often uh, described as um, bigger than life, um, where he talks about, you know, again, his philosophy of life and some of the things that he went through. And that's definitely worth listening to. I've made a playlist that I'll be sharing actually, you know, when we do our um, Zoom, our Twitch party on Saturday, um, I'll be sharing a, a playlist of rare cuts that, you know, I think people ought to be tapped into more. I love the Victory Lap album and I love, you know, Racks in the Middle and Higher and the new record with Jay-Z. Um, this is what it feels like, but, you know, there's a lot more music to be Right, his mixtapes were phenomenal. Um, let me uh, get a couple more questions. Uh, one, um, Nipsey often referred to himself as radical in many interviews. What are your thoughts about this? And the other one is, what do you think helped Nipsey become himself? How do we raise leaders like him? Wow, such a great question. I mean, you know, radical is in the eye of the beholder, right? So, you know, what's radical to one person may be, you know, banal and, and ordinary to another. It just depends on your perspective and, and where, where you're coming from and where you're going to, you know, but um, I think that when he talked about radical, he, he, he meant intellectually unbound, you know, um, un, unlimited in his uh, sense of possibility, unwilling to accept the limitations that were placed on him. That's why you mentioned earlier the, the workspace that, that he founded in, in his uh, community. Vector 90 is the name. I, I neglected to mention that earlier. And if you, if you think about what that means, a vector when you're uh, navigating an aircraft is, you know, a point from where you are to where you want to go. You know, the vector is, is two dots that mark your trajectory. Vector 90 means you're going straight up in the air. It's a, a rapid ascent. And that's what he, you know, that's a radical concept right there, isn't it? You know, um, even though the marathon is a concept of patience and endurance and long-term vision, and Nip was very proud of having taken the stairs and nobody ever having, you know, helped him get to where he got to, no millionaire megastar co-signing him. Um, he, he wanted to go straight to the top and he was not, uh, messing around in, in achieving that. So, so that's, uh, I, I think what he meant by radical, he was, he was in it to win it without any apology by all means necessary in terms of how to raise people like Nipsey Hussle is pay attention to what he was really about. Listen to the music, but listen to the interviews, read this book. It may sound self-serving, but my motivation in writing the marathon don't stop was really to distill all the things that I found, you know, really radical about him and all the important ideas that he embodied. Um, he always said he preferred demonstration to conversation. So it wasn't about, it was about talk about it, don't, you know, not talk about it, but be about it. Right. So, um, you know, actions speak louder than words and, um, somebody had to put it all down. There's a quote in a, in the record outro uh, off of the Marathon Continues mixtape, which I opened the intro of the book with. Um, and he says in that, um, when it's all over, all that counts is how the story's told. So write my name down, write my aim down, 
to do this my own way and carve my own lane out. And, you know, I, I would listen to that line when I was staying up late nights for, for years writing this book and, you know, it gave me some encouragement and some endurance. I mean, you know, you're an author also, Davey D, so you know, it's not a, a, a small undertaking and it helps to have a voice like Nipsey Hussle in your headphones, you know, encourage you to keep going, you know, and I think that was how I was able to finish this book. So, you know, I say, I'm answering the question, how to raise, uh, you know, leaders like Nipsey Hussle, you know, listen to what he was trying to do, pay attention and apply it to your own marathon. Um, I, I haven't spoken about this much because it just happened yesterday, but I, I was very humbled and delighted yesterday to meet with a group of professors and graduate students at Howard University who uh, are planning, like you just mentioned, Davey, to, to teach this book. And uh, we're, I'm going to be part of a conversation at Howard next month, um, you know, to have an open forum with students there. And these are professors from a multiplicity of disciplines, not the music school. You know, this is everything from, you know, criminal justice reform to marketing, economics, uh, you know, sociology, uh, African studies. You know, there's a whole range of areas that NIP was tapped into. And, you know, uh, that's very flattering and humbling, but I hope that this book can be a contribution to, you know, raising more leaders and more enlightened uh, visionaries. Yeah, I, th I think one thing that stands out in terms of how you covered things in the book and, and just Nipsey's life in general is society likes to narrow cast black folks. Either we're poor and you know, unable to have agency and people take this, you know, I'm going to bestow some generosity on you and take these poor helpless people to another place. Or we're scary and we're the boogeyman and we become political fodder. And when people step out of these bounds, you know, the complexity that we as human beings and just people growing up in America is not allowed. And I think it's important, you know, to understand like, yeah, he was a member of a gang. And so were many of the people who started this record industry that we admire, right? Read their books. They talk about bootlegging and, you know, organized crime syndicates. I mean, we worked in this industry to know, right, that that's a, that's a presence. And we're not talking about Bloods and Crips. We're talking about a whole other echelon of people who, when you're in the industry, make it very clear where the power rests. And, you know, they're on TV and they're admired. And we're told that these are heroes and sheroes that we need to get behind. Um, and they're allowed that complexity to come from the, the, the dearth all the way to the sweets. And we say the rags to riches story needs to be admired. But the rags to riches stories of the Nipsies of the world are somehow not allowed. And, and they're discouraged, even though when you're reading this in as you're, can, you know, as you're showing over and over again, you know, and I don't want to give everything away in the book, but I mean, there's a point where he loses every single thing, house, all his music, computers, things that he worked hard for. Police come in just like they did with his brother and take everything away. I'm feeling, you know, like, damn, 
and he comes back. <laughs> he comes back, you know, and, 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 you know, and takes it even the next step. And to me, I think when people hear that part of the story, that's where it becomes inspiring. And oftentimes when people have this conversation, well, let's talk about the sensational part about Nipsey. Let's talk about, if, did he have rivals? Did he have a fight? Did he have beef? Those type of things. Instead, it looked like, yo, they came into your house and they took everything you owned, including the house, and you came back. Like that is, that's, that, that personifies that title. And I think uh, we need to uplift that more than ever because everybody else gets it uplifted and we clap and cheer and say, oh, you know, but when the Drake say we started from the bottom, now we're here. We want it to be a slogan and we want to remove that from the, the, the realities of people who are often written off and people in his neighborhood were written off. I think the other thing, and this is a question for you, is this the connection with family, you know, the street family and his own family, his brother, um, Black Sam, I think is incredibly important. And I feel his presence throughout that book to the point that I'm wondering how he's able to cope with his brother gone because he's such a, a towering figure in, you know, throughout this book. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I cannot, I can only imagine. Um, but I, I'm, I'm so happy that you zeroed in on this idea of resilience and, you know, overcoming every obstacle in your path. And, you know, as I said before, it was tremendously uh, inspiring to me, even before I knew these parts of the story, just what I did know and the things that I, I realized that Nip had achieved against huge odds. And the more I learned, the more I was uh, incredulous that, you know, all of the, the ways that he embodied this idea of a marathon. And, you know, he... He is truly a one of one. And, you know, you mentioned Rakim and Chuck D and I'm not going to debate, you know, this isn't a debate about lyrics and, you know, profound art. I mean, he loved hip hop. Uh, Nipsey loved hip hop. He was a student of hip hop. And when you talk about, you know, rivalries and who was he beefing with, you know, he, he didn't get into hip hop to beef. There was enough conflict in daily life you know hip-hop was a way to elevate himself elevate his community he loved every rapper that could make great music and elevate himself you know you would not even like sometimes he would go on these shows like you know viacom has these shows like sort of game show things where you get rap celebrities and try to put them in silly situations and i've seen him on this one show as him and, and Ludacris and they were like, who would you never make a record with? Or, you know, just trying to get silly answers. He would not diss Vanilla Ice. He would not diss anybody. You know, like he loved hip hop and he just wanted rap to win. He wanted rappers to be respected. And, you know, if you could use the art form to better yourself, he was all for it, you know. Um, yes. So that part of it is just kind of irrelevant to the conversation. And I don't think he would have said... I'm a better rapper than Rakim or whatever else, but he wanted to be his own authentic self and tell his own story and demonstrate with actions that he could, he could build a career without compromise, not learn dance moves, even though the guy at Interscope Records wanted to practice his dance moves, you know, 
to do it on his terms, own it, bring up his family, bring up his community. And tragically, you know, his commitment to that community uh, led him to be in that parking lot on March 31st. And, you know, that's the sad part of the story. But, um, you know, the focus of the marathon don't stop, as I mentioned, is not the tragedy, it's the triumph. And that's the part that we all hold on to. That's the part right. that inspires us. And that's why we're sitting here right. tonight. And which is why I'm not even asking about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're going to close out. So there's a question that wants to find out about hip hop journalism and what, what do you think about it? And how can somebody who's a young head um, excel in it? Um, as you answer that, I'm going to also ask you to give a 60 second response as to what is your 60 second idea to change the world. And uh, somebody asked me a question real quick, um, which I think has already been answered. How has Nipsey influenced um, our class that we teach at SF State on hip hop? And um, I think it, the reason why I'm having, you know, I'm going to use part of the book is because it gives the history, right? So I mean, we need to know the backdrop of this political, social, and economic landscape that is forged by policy, which then, you know, you have younger people coming up in the 70s, both in L.A. and in New York, and in other parts of the country who have to navigate that. It ranges from benign neglect from Senator Patrick uh, Daniel Monaghan, which is then adapted by Richard Nixon, all the way down to local policies. In New York, it was a policy of abandonment. And in L.A., it was a politics of containment, which you talked about, like nobody can leave this neighborhood without being jacked up by the police. And so when you read this, it's you, you understand um, the resilience and you can admire that. And so hip hop is a is is constant resilience and so we we incorporate his story and these other stories of resilience um whether it's nipsey or whether it's so many women that are involved and others so that people can understand that you can make a way out of no way so that's the answer to the question on uh, you know how how we infuse it in the class but journalism and 60 seconds on how to change the world as we close out rob kenner Wow. Well, you know, journalism is a completely different playing field in 2021 than it was in 1992 when I first became involved with Vibe. Um, the good news is that you don't need anybody to put you on uh, and give you an opportunity to do journalism. You just need to do the work and you need to break out of the retweet uh, hashtag mindset of social media. And I would encourage anyone that wants to do valuable work in documenting culture to, you know, actually do some reporting, actually talk to people who were part of powerful movements. It could be a, a yet unknown artist that you're impressed by their work, um, but it could also be somebody that is an old timer that, you know, maybe other people aren't bothering to talk to. And you know, do primary research, document what you believe is important and make a contribution. So much of what passes for journalism at this point, in my view, is just a kind of, you know, clout chasing, retweet kind of mindset. And, you know, without sounding like a grumpy old head, I think it's very important to, you know, look for uh, stories that need to be told 
and tell them and use platforms like Medium, the blogging tool that a lot of people read, um, use social media, but use it to do meaningful work. You know, there's a there's an Instagram account called Ain't No Jigga. I, I, I know you've probably checked that out. You know, whoever is doing that account is using Instagram to do amazingly detailed uh, reportage on specific moments in Jay-Z's life. And that's just one example. But, you know, the medium can be used in lots of different ways. And so I would encourage people do great work and it will rise to the top. It will matter and people will notice it. And just keep going. It is a marathon and not a sprint, you know. Um, tell the truth. Tell the truth. Be truthful. Yeah, that, that too. Yeah, tell the truth. Yeah, truth is an endangered species these days. Yeah. You know, I mean, there, I, I want to say something just before I get to how to save the world. You know, the Marathon Don't Stop is an unauthorized biography. That can mean a lot of different things. Um, there are gossip-oriented projects as a, a writer named kitty kelly without throwing shade i think she was famous for the like celebrity tell-all unauthorized biography on various figures and it was a lot of what we now call like tmz kind of stuff and you know dishing dirt and gossip or whatever what i mean by uh, unauthorized biography of nipsey hustle is that nobody signed off on this this was not done you know, it was not officially sanctioned by the family. I should say that up front. I did have a chance to speak with Black Sam and with um, Nip's sister and, you know, and a lot of people in his inner circle. But it was also not signed off by the record label. It was also not signed off by, you know, major management and corporate connects and all the people that have kind of, you know, taken their shine of the Nipsey Hustle legacy, right? You know, after someone becomes great, you know, people who joined the, the, the movement at whatever stage, you know, like to say that they were, you know, responsible for whatever success. And as you mentioned, Davey, there was a lot of, you know, laps running this marathon before anybody was tapping in. And, and you know, he was turning down record deals because he didn't want to give away ownership. So this is a, a book which um, tells the truth to the best of my understanding. And, uh, people came forward to speak to me because they heard that it was unauthorized. There are voices in this book who approached me who I'd never heard of and said, well, we checked you out and you seem cool and this is unauthorized. So we feel that you're going to tell the truth and you're going to let a voice like, you know, Dexter Brown be heard from who has been left out of the narrative and played such a vital role. And there's, there's other examples of that. So, you know, for journalists, don't be uh, influenced by the forces that want to control the narrative as much as possible. As you said, quite appropriately, Davey, tell the truth. Um, how to save the world. Uh, I would say, remember that, as a song once said, one world is enough for all of us, right? We're all uh, astronauts on a planet called Spaceship Earth you know, and all the barriers of nations and neighborhoods and, uh, you know, racial and ethnic divisions and all the walls that we want to build between one another and, and divide, you know, the, the riches and the resources um, are, are ultimately going to be our downfall. And, you know, if we don't understand that, you know, fresh air and clean water is in short supply, and, you know, much less food and, you know, clothes and shelter and all the necessities of life, 
um, eventually those inequities lead to catastrophe, you know, and um, if we don't wake up to that fact, and this was something that I believe Nipsey understood very well and spoke about in more than one record, there's a song called Payback that's worth listening to. Um, you know, those divisions, those walls are ultimately going to be our downfall. So save the world. We need to understand that we're all citizens of planet Earth. We're all astronauts on spaceship Earth. And if we can come together, we could actually potentially achieve a kind of utopia. Um, but the alternative is oblivion and the choice is ours, you know? Well, that was uh, two minutes and 30 seconds, but... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, the book's 400 pages and... You know, I had another couple hundred in me. I, I cut the manuscript down to fit it in, so I'm I'm not that good at brevity. It's a wonderful book. Um, one last thing. Rob will be part of a big uh, celebration of hip hop on Saturday. It'll be a launch party on Twitch. Can people? Can you give people your Instagram so they can go to your Instagram and get the information there? Absolutely, it's at Robert J Kenner. And the link is in the bio for all the events that are happening around this book. And I'm really looking forward to uh, the, the Twitch party, which is called Word. You know, um, in, in Jamaica, the Rasas talk about word, sound, and power. And, uh, you know, we are celebrating powerful words from people like Nip Hustle, from people like Jeff Chang, from people like Rocky Rivera, and, of course, your illustrious host, Davey D., um, it's a celebration of hip hop, which is, you know, beats and rhymes and rhymes are made of words. And, you know, so we're going to celebrate the From words. 10 o'clock until midnight. There you go. All day Saturday. That being said, thank you, Robert Kerner, for joining me today at Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. Um, everybody that's listening, please be sure to pick up a copy of his new book, The Marathon Don't Stop, The Life and Times of Nipsey Hussle. And if you like to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org. So again, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash online. With that being said, I'm Davey D. Thank you, everybody, and good night. Peace. You've been listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org.